Now, before I begin, I do want to note that it has been brought to my attention that this is not the first time that you have heard this scripture this year. In fact, it's been brought to my attention that this scripture was preached on not very long ago in this sanctuary, and, and for that I offer sincere apologies. However, it's never a bad thing to hear scripture read twice, and unless you're cheating, which I'm not, you're not going to hear the same sermon from the same scripture from two different pastors. And, and beyond that, as we've entered this season of Lent, I, I think this passage is very appropriate for the season. This passage describes the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We are, as it were, at the very start of the journey. The journey of Lent, the journey of Jesus and his disciples. It's the very start of the journey through Galilee, across to the Decapolis, the land of the Gentiles, back into Judea, and, and then finally, the ultimate destination of Jerusalem, the tomb, and the good news of it all, the empty tomb. Just to catch up a little bit, in, in the two preceding chapters, Jesus has been baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan, and then he was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And when he comes back from the wilderness, he learns that John has been handed over. He's been arrested by Herod Antipas. And instead of remaining in Nazareth, his hometown, he leaves that place and makes his home in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it is an interesting choice. I don't know if you know too much about the geography of Israel, but Galilee is a very tiny region. And Capernaum, it's sorry, Galilee is a very tiny region. It was considered back then, and by some today even, to be a kind of remote backwater kind of place, hardly comparable to the glory and significance of Jerusalem, which is where you might expect the Savior to go. But Jesus didn't. He went to Capernaum, this tiny little fishing village on the northwest side of the sea. Some try to argue that Jesus headed there to Capernaum to escape John's fate and avoid arrest by Herod, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Herod actually ruled this region of Israel, and so Jesus can't escape the danger Herod poses by staying in Galilee. He's just, he's in as much danger there as he was in Nazareth. So why Galilee? Why Capernaum? Why this remote backwater place instead of Jerusalem? Well, Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus made this move to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah. It should be noted also that this is one of Matthew's concerns. That is, Matthew always wants to show that, not always, Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, this is, I believe, the fifth of ten fulfillment quotations used in Matthew's gospel. Now, in this case, this region of Israel, Galilee, used to be Zebulon and Naphtali. And those lands, Zebulon and Naphtali, way back when, were the first lands to fall to the Assyria invasion in 732 BCE, hundreds of years before this happened with Jesus. And also a full decade 
before the Assyrian army actually came in and wiped out the rest of Israel. And it's because of that. It's because of that that the prophet Isaiah says that these lands were in contempt. They were in darkness, in the region and shadow of death. And Matthew's point is to show that Jesus' presence there in Capernaum, in Galilee, was the light to dawn on these lands. The light that dispelled their darkness. The light that brought them out of the shadow of death. And gave them a hope which they've never imagined before. And not coincidentally, my friends. This is exactly what Jesus continues to do to this day. Even now, all of these years later, Jesus continues to be the light that dawns on us, that dispels our darkness, brings us out of the shadow of death, and gives us a hope we have not known before. And it all began in a tiny remote fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And here at the very beginning, we are told who Jesus is, what he will do, and our part in it. Now, Matthew does not say how long Jesus was in Capernaum and Galilee proclaiming repentance, declaring that the kingdom of heaven is near at hand before he actually called the brothers. But we know the story well, not least because you heard it a couple of weeks ago, but also because it's a very famous story, right? He's walking by the sea, And he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They're fishing. They're throwing their nets into the sea. And he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And what happened? They dropped their nets. They dropped their lives and followed him. And he continued on by the sea, and and he saw two other brothers, James and John, the son of Zebedee, with their father. And he called them, and immediately they left. They left their lives and their father and followed him. Do you think they had any idea what they were doing? Do you think they had any idea? what lay ahead for them? On a practical note, did they have any idea, having left home and family and job and welfare, what they were going to eat in the next day or two? Did they have any idea where they might end up following Jesus Christ? I dare ask, do we? They couldn't have possibly imagined what lay in store for them. The miracles they were going to witness. The healings. The size of the crowds. 5,000 people. That's a lot of people. The life-changing wisdom they would experience in Jesus Christ as he taught them and embodied that wisdom. Could not have foreseen foreseen the, the persecution, the arrest, and of course the trial. Remember this same Simon who Jesus will call Peter or Rock, 
is the very same Simon Peter who will one day deny even having known Jesus, even after having followed him the entire time of his public ministry. They couldn't have possibly understood. They could not have possibly understood what following Jesus would mean for them. And many, if not most times, my friends, we don't either. But follow they did, right? Follow they did and follow they must because we, like the brothers, we have been called. Called to follow Christ wherever he leads. A couple of weeks ago in the bleak midwinter, I awoke, and as I do every morning, I took my dog, Loki, for a walk around the lake. Many times, Loki and I are treated to a gaggle of geese or two, making their descent onto the surface of the lake, bleeding and honking and splashing as they land by the dozens on the water. It's quite a sight to see. This particular morning, however, it was quite cold, and the surface of the lake had actually frozen over, so I thought to myself, well, no geese today. But as I surveyed the iced over water, I noticed that there were, in fact, geese on the lake. Two of them, standing there in the center. And of course, being geese, I could not tell if they were content or confused by their situation. There was no water to bathe in. There's no water to drink. There is cold ice to stand on, and, and that's about it. And I got a little bit of a giggle out of it until I realized one of those geese had to have led the other one there. Geese don't have leaders, right? But they do take advantage of that flying V whenever there are more than one of them. And that means one of them led the other one there. And I thought to myself, hmm, not many kudos to that leader. Could have found a better spot, but hats off. To the one who followed. Hats off to the one who followed, if only because it illustrates our call to follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads. But we don't just follow Jesus just to see where he'll lead us, do we? That's not really the only point to it. We follow Jesus Christ for a reason. And again, at the very outset of his public ministry, Jesus tells us why we're to follow him. It's so that we might be fishers of people. So that we, too, like Jesus Christ, can go out into the world and share the love and light of the living God that has transformed so many lives in so many ways and so many places, including our own we follow Jesus so that we might invite others to share in the knowledge that the kingdom of heaven is indeed near at hand. It's interesting that in Jesus' day and age, maybe ours too, although that's not really relevant, rabbis, teachers, and gurus in Jesus' day and age did not go out in search of students. They didn't 
go around looking for people to follow them. That would have been considered beneath them. That would have been considered the opposite of what should be happening. See, it's the rabbis, it's the teachers, it's the gurus who are the ones who should be sought out by the students, not the other way around. What does the student have to offer the master? But not so with Jesus of Nazareth. Not so with our Messiah. He didn't wait for his students, his disciples to come and and seek him. No. Friends, we have an eager Savior who comes to us with an invitation to follow him and fish for people. It's interesting to note that this is not the first time in Scripture that this metaphor to fish for people is used. It is relatively rare. You've got to go looking for it. But when it occurs, when it occurs, it's always in a hostile sense, a negative sense of capturing or even killing people. You can find it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Habakkuk. It's in the Qumran literature, likewise, in that negative context of of judgment and destruction. Catching men is also found in that negative sense in, in later rabbinic literature. So Jesus' positive, salvific use of this metaphor in the Jewish tradition has no parallel before or after him. His use of the metaphor is singularly unique. And just as Jesus loved to do, he turned the whole thing on its head. No more was fishing for people a destructive, judgmental, or even killing act. No. In the hands and words of Jesus Christ, this terrifically negative metaphor became a terrifically positive one, tied forever to his message and mission to bring people into the light of the living God. It occurs to me that the fish, fish actually kind of live their lives in a kind of gloom. Not an emotional, depressed gloom, of course, but more like a a gloomy day when the sun doesn't shine and the clouds and rain obscure the light. They swim around in those murky depths, but they can only see the sun dimmed and refracted by the water. Maybe this is some of what Jesus had in mind when he called his disciples to fish for people. To follow him, learn from him, and then join with him in bringing those who live in that murky darkness into the light of the living God. Just like Peter, just like Andrew, just like James and John and all the others, my friends, God calls us. God invites us to follow Jesus Christ. God expects us to fish for people just as Jesus did. And all the while, God continues to fish for the dark and lost parts of our own selves. Because it's not as if non-Christians or so-called unbelievers somehow have a monopoly on gloom or murk or darkness in life. Being a Christian does not insulate us from the pain of life, does it? 
And so I'd like to leave you with this. What gloom is in your own life that you need Jesus Christ to dispel? What are the murky depths in your own heart that only Jesus can pull you out of? What darkness do you live with that only the light of the living God can disperse? Where is the shadow of death living in your heart? Because as we follow Christ and fish for people, Jesus continues to fish for us, continues time and time and time again to reel us in and pull us out of the shadow of death and the region of despair into that place of new hope that we could not have possibly imagined. My friends, this is our call. This is our invitation. And God will never stop inviting The good news of the gospel is that God is going fishing, and we're the fish. Amen.